0: Soul of the Parsha, with Rabbi Nir Menusi. This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Shalom everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We are starting a new book, the fifth and final book of the Torah, the book of Devarim, or Deuteronomy. And this is the first Parsha from that book, which itself is also called Devarim. The fifth part, the fifth book of the Torah, is special. It's different than the other four books. It is said in the tractate of Megillah and the Gemara that the first four books were said mipi hagvura, from the mouth of the, from the mouth of might, that is, from the mouth of God Himself. Whereas the fifth book is said from the mouth of Moses, the mouth of Moshe. It's really him repeating, reiterating stories and commandments that we've heard about, we've all read about in the first four books, in his own words. It's now Moshe finding his own words. Moshe is called Isha Elohim, the man of God. And the sages said he was half man, half God, so to speak. That the upper level. The upper half of his being was divine, and the lower half of his being was human, so to speak. It's all metaphorical. And we can say that up until now, we mostly experienced his upper his upper divine half. Whereas now, in the fifth book, we finally get to experience his lower human half, because now we see him, we hear him speaking, in his own words, finding his own words to describe the Torah. In many ways, this is the beginning of the oral Torah. Before the oral Torah was handed to the seventy uh, wise men, the seventy elders, and to Joshua and to the, the rest of the generations, the prophets, and later on to the hands of the of Chazal, uh, the oral Torah begins here in this parsha, in this book with Moshe uh, beginning to tell the story of the Torah in his own words. Um, Who was more, so to speak, uh, human, uh, not so divine, not so coming from above, not so uh, lofty, and superior to the rest of the Jews the other the, the second two siblings of moshe it was Aaron, and it was miriam Aaron and miriam were far more human they were far, far more relatable they accompanied and and took the hand of the jewish people sort of went with them hand by hand um, aaron was called the shoshvina de de malka he was the the giving of the Torah was like the marriage of the Jewish people with the with the Hu. God was like the groom and the Jewish people was like the bride. And Moshe accompanied the groom. He went all the way up to the mountain, brought the Torah down. But Aaron accompanied the bride. He was with us, down here with us. It also involved uh it was also part of this was that he was involved in building the golden calf. He'd really tried not to make it into what it became, but it was part of him being with us. And the same goes for Miriam. Miriam very much was a woman of the people, and she was there with the people, and giving them water, and giving them hope, and so on. Now we know that the three shepherds, the three siblings, they gave us all gifts. The gift of Moshe was the manna bread, the gift of Aaron was the the clouds of glory that protected the Jewish people, and the gift of Miriam was the well that she gave, with which she gave water to the people throughout the years in the wilderness. But we also know that once uh, Miriam passed away, the well returned by virtue of Moshe and Aaron. And when Aaron passed away, again, also the clouds of glory disappeared, but came back through Moshe. This is really a process of Moshe becoming one with his siblings. They died before him. And once they died, we're really talking at the very last year of the desert, he is forced to take their place. And their gifts come back through him. And the ultimate result of this is that now in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, of the book of Dvarim, he became more human and like his older siblings, more relatable. He can now speak to us and say, now I want to repeat the Torah in my own words, in human words, words that you can understand. I'm not just being a a vessel or a, uh, a loudspeaker for the divine voice, the divine words, the words that come from on high. I'm going to tell you the story of the Torah in my own words. Now, a verse that we have that really encapsulates this at the very beginning of the parasha. For those of you who don't know, this year we're dedicating our classes. Every week we're studying the first aliyah of the parasha. That was the limitation I set on myself in the beginning of the year. We're only studying the, we're taking an element from the first aliyah. So in one of the verses, says, says, on the other side of the Jordan River, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook so I'll read the Hebrew first, Moses undertook or began to expound or to elaborate this, this Torah, this teaching or this Torah. And then he said, and, 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 and the, the, really the beginning of the book, this is how the book really begins. So, the interesting phrase here that we want to focus on today is Be'er et HaTorah, Leva'er, the Hebrew verb Leva'er means to elucidate or to expound. But this is the first time that this word appears in the Torah. It's a very basic word. It appears, it's like having a commentary. You can say Perush Rashi, you can say Be'ur Rashi. So all the commentators are called mefarashim, they're also called meva'arim. L'va'ar is a very basic Hebrew word, and we use it to, when people explain something in the Torah, to explain something is l'va'ar. But it never once appeared in the Torah until now. So this is the beginning of commentary, the beginning of bi'ur. Moshe is now beginning l'va'ar. But what does it exactly mean? So since this is the first time it appears, we want a bi'ur for the word bi'ur. The word bi'ur itself needs bi'ur, needs explaining, because we haven't seen it before. We have seen the root, bet alifresh. The root appeared many times in a noun, not in a verb. Which noun was it? What is 'er? be'er? Be'er means a well, a well of water, where water comes forth. For we, we mentioned just now, the well of Miriam, Miriam's well, that is called a Be'er. But as a verb, which means to elucidate or expound, it never appeared. So the sages explain, and Rashi brings their commentary here, and says something very, very interesting and surprising. He says, Le'va'er, when, when uh, Moshe began Be'er et HaTorah, it means he translated the Torah to the 70 languages of the world. This is coming from the sages. The sages actually said this about a very similar phrase, which was Ba'er that appears later on in Parashat Kitavo. Tavo. Parashat Kitavo, we're told that once we enter the Land of Israel, we need to set up some big rocks, and we need to paint them white, and we need to write the Torah on them, Ba'er heitev. Same verb, same phrase, Leva'er. There it also says the word Heitev. Ironically, interestingly, Heitev means... Well, well, I mean the um, the adverb well. So in English there's some there's also a play here. The noun well is be'er, and the verb, sorry, the the uh, adverb well means to do something in, in a good way. And in Hebrew, Heitev is the adverb well, and it goes with be'er in Parshat Kitavo. Be'er, be'er, Heitev. Anyway, we, here we have Ba'erita Torah, there we have Ba'er Tev, and the sages say we need to translate the Torah to the 70 languages. We need to do this once we go into the land of Israel. And since Rashi is putting it here, we also know that this was begun by Moses himself. He translated the Torah to 70 languages. Now, this is very, very interesting in many, many different ways. Um, we didn't know that Moshe knew the, all 70 languages, <laughs> Uh, we don't know why the Jewish people need the Torah translated into 70 languages. Why does this have to do with the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy? With Moshe, are we explaining the Torah? It's a very strange thing to say that he translated the Torah into, into 70 languages. So it seems to go together with the idea that uh, since Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, the word Dvarim just means words. Words or speech in the plural. So, it's all about speech. It's about Moses' speech. So, obviously, there is a connection between the idea of explaining the Torah in your own words and the concept of translation. Even if you're using the same language, and you're explaining something to someone, it's really a kind of translation. You're taking a concept that was written in so many words, and you're explaining it with some new words of your own. That is a kind of translation. So, even if he just expounded upon the Torah in Hebrew, in the Holy Tongue, it was a form of translation. When you put it in your own words, it's, it, you're adding new words to the mix, and they're yours. And so, this is the first sort of connection that we see. But it doesn't fully answer the idea of, the, uh, of, of translating it into 70, the whole 70 languages. So let's start with one nice little thing. Um, we, we said that there is a linguistic connection between the verb to, to elucidate or translate, levaer, and the well, the well of water of Miriam. What do we know about the Miriam's well of water? We know that it was situated in the middle of the camp, next to the tabernacle. And then we know that the 12 chiefs of the tribes would come to it, and would use their staff, they would sink to it, and it would, it would rise up. And then they would take their staffs, and they would dig a channel that would connect the well to their own camps, to the 12 camps. And then what you had was 12 streams of water going in lines that would start at the center and would go all the way to all the camps. In a way, this is a kind of translation also. Why? It's a, it was a means of, trans, of transportation, because we know that the women would use boats to travel along these streams from one tribe to the other. And in a way, we can see it metaphorically as a kind of network of communication, not just transportation, because the 12 tribes had their own subcultures. They had their own flags and their own uh, symbols and their own um, uh, 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 version of, the, of prayers. And it was, so to speak, different cultural codes or languages. And so the well used to, to was a, a, created a network of transportation which was also a network of communication, unifying the 12 tribes uh, and reminding them that they're all part of one people. In a way, what Moshe is doing now is taking the same concept, the same idea, and expanding it from the 12 tribes within the Jewish people to the 70 nations of the world. We know that the Jewish people went into Egypt as 70 people and came out as 12 tribes. So the two numbers are very important. And then when they got to a place called Elim in the desert, they found 12 trees, palm trees, Sorry, 12 water fountains and 70 palm trees. And one of the explanations is that it was, a, it was a kind of reminder that they were once 70 people, now they became 12 tribes. So we have something interesting here. They started out as 70 people, they became 12 tribes, but ultimately they want to reach the 70 nations. So we have 70 as a very small number of just 70 people, then we have 12 tribes, and then we have 12 tribes, uh, sorry, 70 peoples of the entire world and so Miriam took the well and used it to create this network of communication between the 12 tribes Moshe is taking the same concept and is building upon that concept and is taking one step further and creating, beginning to create a network of communication between all the nations he learned this from Miriam this is the connection between Be'er well and Be'er to elucidate Right? It's, it's very symbolic and abstract, but we can do, totally see the connection. The connection is we want to create bridges of communication between different uh, groups that, that maybe are becoming too alienated from one another. Miriam did it within the people, and Moshe is now beginning to do it outside of the people. He wants to bridge all the peoples of mankind and bring them all under the, the wings of faith, of devotion to Hashem. Okay, so anyway, all this sounds very, very good, right? Because it's it's translating the Torah into seventy languages. and it seems to in somehow some way rectify the Tower of Babel in which there was one language and it became split into seventy languages, and the seventy nations can't speak to one another, they don't understand one another. And ultimately, we want them all to to become one one family again, one human family, the family of humanity. And to, uh, and to all serve God together. And Moshe seems to begin this process now. On the other hand, we also have a very negative story regarding translating the Torah to other languages. And we need to make sense of, really the question is, is translation good or bad? And like every question we pose, we know that the answer is going to be, it's both good and bad. So we want to understand, in what way is it good, and what way is it bad? And what does translation mean in a deep way? So both literally, what does it mean to translate the Torah to other languages? Which is basically, by the way, what I'm doing right now, because the Torah is in Hebrew, we're speaking English, and I'm I'm doing my best to translate verses and ideas from the Torah. And of course, this needs to happen all over the world. There are many Jews who speak all the languages, and there are many non-Jews that we also want to reach today, and and have them learn Torah. Uh, and if this is unfamiliar to you, then then we'll, this will be explained in some other situation. This is a whole concept that Rabbi Ginsburg is pushing in the in the several in the past few years that uh, it's time for the Torah to spread to all to all the nations, and this was prophesied by the prophets. But he's saying that it's really time to. To uh, to start doing this, and and we should we should uh, dedicate some, some more time to this uh, some other time some other opportunity. So what is the negative story? The negative story. There are several versions of it. One version is in is in is in Masichet Zofrim, and it talks about the King Tolmeus, Ptolemy. Or Ptolemy. Right? Ptolemy is in Greek. It's written with a P, with an unpronounced phi in the beginning. In Hebrew, it just says Talmai. King Ptolemy wanted to have the Torah translated to Greek. Not 70 languages, just one language. So according to one version, he had five translators. According to another version, he had 72 translators. The version that talks about five translators says that they, 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 they did it. They translated it. And then it says something very harsh. That day was as hard a day to the people of Israel as the day in which the golden calf was built. That's what it says. It was so terrible that the the Torah was translated into Greek. It was a terrible event. And it was as hard a day as the day in which the calf was built Why? Because it was impossible to properly translate the Torah. It was impossible to translate the Torah as it fully should be. So it was a very hard day. The other version is that it was 72 people. It doesn't say it was a hard day, but there are also hints that it was there was a lot of danger there. The hint is that they were very much afraid that the way they're going to translate it, if they would translate it literally, it will be totally misunderstood and it will be abused. People will, the, the Greeks, will use it to make fun of the Torah and to make fun of the Jewish faith. So there was a miracle and the miracle was that they all the seventy-two people, and they and they worked separately. That's the miracle. They worked in, in in separate rooms, and no communication between them. But God made it so that they made the exact same changes—thirteen changes—in the pshat meaning of the Torah. They changed it. For example, they 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 didn't start the Torah with Bereshit bara Elokim, but instead Elokim bara Bereshit, uh, and many other and and twelve more changes. Every time there was a risk that it's going to be misinterpreted by the Greeks, they changed it. So we see that it's very risky, very problematic. They have to make intentional changes. The, the, the Greeks aren't really ready to learn it properly. It doesn't say that it was a, so harsh a day, but it doesn't sound so, so good either. And, and then another third source says that all this happened on the 8th day of Tevet, and that the world became dark for 3 days. Which means it ended up on the 10th of Tevet, which is a fasting day. It's one of the 4 fasts of the destruction of the Temple. So really, so we have 3 things. We have that it was translated, and the day was as harsh as the building of of the Golden Calf. And then we also have another source saying, that it happened on the eighth day of Tevet and the world became dark for three days until the tenth of Tevet. So now we see that for some strange reason, the translation of the Torah is very much connected to the destruction of the Temple, to two out of the four fasts of the destruction of the Temple. In fact, it's the two fasts that uh, um, uh, commemorate events preceding the destruction of the Temple. Right? What are the four fasts of the destruction of the Temple? The first one is the 10th day of Tevet, which is the siege, the beginning of the siege over Jerusalem. second one is the 17th day of Tammuz, which is, which originally was the day of the building of the calf, But it was also the day in which the walls of Jerusalem were broken and the enemy invaded. And then we have the ninth day of Av, which is the main fasting day, which is the destruction of the Temple itself. And we also have Tzom G'dalia, which is uh, how the, the remainder of the Jewish society in Israel was also, also collapsed. So the first two fasts have to do with Asar HaBetevet, 10th day of Tevet, and 17th day of Tammuz. And they're both connected to the translation of the Torah into Greek. One, because it happened just two days before and the world became dark up until the day of 10th of Tevet. And the other connection is that it, it, it didn't happen on Tammuz, but it was connected to the first main negative event that Tammuz talks about, that the 17th day of Tammuz talks about, which is the building of the Golden Calf. All this has to do with the translation of the Torah into Greek, and that's just one language. So this is a big, big question. What does it mean that uh, translating the Torah into Greek was such a negative event and the Torah couldn't be translated properly and the world became dark and the, it was as hard as it is, the building of the of the calf and all this. And on the other hand, we know that the Torah was translated to Greek and all other languages long, long before this by no other than Moshe himself. So again, is translation a good thing or a bad thing? So let's start with the with the, uh, uh, with the connection to the Golden Calf. What was the Golden Calf? The Golden Calf, it's well known, it wasn't a sin against God. They did not try to replace God with the Golden Calf. That's a common misunderstanding. The, the reason that the Jewish people built the Golden Calf was that they needed an intermediate level between themselves and God. The, Moshe has, has been gone for 40 days, and they felt that they, they they still believed in God, and they still believed that God was their savior, but they felt that without Moshe they need to replace Moshe with something else, and so they built the golden calf. This is very strongly connected to translations. Translation is something intermediate between the person and the text. The text is sometimes very very hard to understand. It's hard to understand if you're a non-Hebrew speaker, obviously because you just don't understand the words, or too many of the words. And interestingly, it's also very hard to understand for a Hebrew speaker. Because it's the Torah, is so high and dense and, and complex and multi-layered and multifaceted. And, and, and also, modern Hebrew, not just modern Hebrew, even the Hebrew from the time of the Mishnah is not identical to the Hebrew of biblical times. And, and so that we, all, we always need translators. If a translation goes well, it becomes a good intermediate, a connecting intermediate. This is like Moshe being a connecting intermediate between the people and God. But if the translation is not well, if it's not well translated, it becomes like a golden calf. It becomes a separating intermediate instead of a connecting intermediate. An intermediate can work both ways. It can connect you, it can can detach you. It can make you think you understood, but whereas you didn't understand. So, this is connected to something very deep about translations generally. There's something very, very sad or dismaying about, about translations. And there's also something very exhilarating about translations. If you know two languages, and you're able to compare translations, you get this experience very, very strongly. On the one hand, you, you, you know a text very well, a poem, a story, a verse from the from the Bible. And you know it by heart, and you're very much connected to it. And you enjoy the, the way it's said, it's not just the content, it's also the form, it's the rhythm, maybe there's some a wordplay play going on there, and you love it very much. Then you read a translation. The first experience you get when you read a translation of a text you love is no, 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 no. This totally isn't it. This is like taking a shower with a raincoat. This is like uh, seeing the world through some heavily tinted sunglasses. This is just not it. And we know there's a phrase, it's called lost in translation. So much is lost in translation. And the origin station is say, oh no, dear God, is, is that what they have to do with this, the the people speaking the other, the other language? There was a famous author called a Russian author called Vladimir Nabokov, and he first wrote in Russian, but then he had to flee the communist regime, and he went to America, and he started writing in English. And of course, his English was far better than almost all American uh, authors, because he was such a genius. And his English was far better than native English speakers. And his English was just incredible and beautiful, full of wordplay. But he kept saying, "If you think my English is good, you should know my Russian. You have no idea how my Russian is. My English is just a such a poor, poor language. I, 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 if you would only, if you could only read my my Russian books, you would understand what good writing is." And so, this frustration is very basic to translation. But there is another, uh, there is an, another another side to all of this. The other side is that when you read a translation for something, and especially if you read several translations, so again, if you have the benefit of knowing two languages, and you know a text in one, in one language, and you're able to see a few translations to that one text, and you compare them, something incredible happens you get a new appreciation for the complexity and the multifacetedness of the original text. And you get this by virtue, thanks to the many translations, or the several translations. There's something about, although each one is like a very pale copy of the original, with much lost in each translation, When you put them all together, it's somehow amazing. It's amazing that the original text inspired several translators, and they did a totally different job. You know what? Even if you can't read the original text, and you just take several translations, and you can do this easily, you take a famous poem in Italian or in French, whatever language, and you take all the English translations that were made to that poem, and just read them, even without understanding the original language, and you would get this amazing experience. And of course, you can do this with the, with the Torah. You just take a bunch of English translations. Just take a bunch, and each, each verse, just read five translations. There are more than five English, English translations to the original. Something incredible happens. You get a very clear and beautiful demonstration of just how rich and dense... And multi-layered is the original text. And there's something about reading it through translation that makes this experience more uh, concrete uh, and more, uh, you know, something you can actually see and feel than when you just read the original text, knowing the original language and learning the, 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 the different commentaries on it. So, this is a very interesting thing that's going on with, with translation. So, we can say that, on the one hand, we have things lost in translation. And on the other hand, we have things found in translation. Sometimes, there are things found in translation that you wouldn't able to find in another way. There is a kind of gift that the translation gives to the original original verse. By the way, I know a a very good translator here in Israel who translates from English to Hebrew. And then I noticed something interesting that he does. I gave him a, I needed to quote a certain popular song in something something that I wrote. So I, you know, I I wrote to him, I said, I want to give you a a little challenge. It's no big deal for you. Take the few verses of this song, popular song, was a Cole Potter song. And it was written almost in a slangy English. And please translate it to Hebrew. And a few minutes later he wrote back and he sent me a beautiful, beautiful translation. But I told him, you know it's very beautiful, it's really ingenious, but it's, you know, the language you used is much higher and more classy uh, than the original. The original was written in slang English in things that you know are commonplace phrases. And I notice this with a lot of things that you do. When you translate them, you upgrade them. You upgrade the original. He says, you're absolutely right. And I do this in order to make up for what's lost in translation. Because I know that so much is lost in translation, I make up to it by improving the translation and turning it into a, somehow a higher level poem or song than it was before. So this is the experience and this, you need a very good translator to have to do this. But this is the experience of uh of their, of an experience of being found in translation. Now the Rebbe says something interesting. The Rebbe says the the phrase of the story in Chazal that said that when the when the Torah was translated into Greek, it was as difficult as the day in which the kalf was built, the golden calf was built. He's the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe says, notice, it doesn't say that it was as difficult as the building of the golden kalf. It talks for some strange reason about the day in which the calf was made. It it points to the day. What was so special about the day? So the Rebbe says something very beautiful. The Rebbe says, the day in which the golden kalf was built was not a bad day per se. How do we know this? The day it was built, it wasn't yet worshipped. It was worshipped the next day. The next day was the really bad day. The first day wasn't so bad. In fact, it was bad day they built it, but it wasn't that bad a day. The next day was was the bad day. In fact, Aaron still hopes that tomorrow, by tomorrow, Moshe will come back. And they will all forget about the golden calf and go back to and go, go up to greet Moshe. So he says, Chag <laughs> Le'Hashem Tomorrow is a, is, a, is a festive day for God. And it didn't turn out that way, it became a very bad day. And in fact, Yudzayin Tammuz, the 70th day of Tammuz, is going to become a holiday, like all fasting days, like the 10th day of Tevet, and the 9th day of Av coming up, and the 17th day of Tammuz, they're all going to be holidays, good days, festive days. So the problem with that day was that, not that it was, they didn't worship the calf. They built it, but then there was a big question, what's going to happen with it? Are they going to toss it away and go back to to greeting Moshe? Or are they going to worship it? It's liable. It's a day of liability. It's not a day of actual sinning. It's a day in which the possibility of sinning is opening up. And the same thing happens with translation. The Rebbe says, translating the Torah is a very, very high messianic, goal. The Torah has to be translated to 70 languages. The Torah needs to be uh, explained, expounded in all the languages, including everything that will be lost. But because it will be in all 70 languages, and then it, the Torah will be learned through those languages, also new things will be found. And the Torah will be enriched. And it's part of the Messianic times. But there's also a very, very high risk that it's going to take away from the Torah because the balance may be lost. And then it will all just be lost. It'll all just be lost in translation. That's why, that's why the, the day became dark for three days. The world became dark for three days because it wasn't a good translation. It was done in a negative way. It was done because a, a, a Greek king decreed it, not because it needed to happen, not because it was ready for it to happen. It was just done in, in this very negative way. And then it became dark, and it became as bad as the day that the, kalf, the, the Golden calf was, was built. What are the good things that will come out of translating the Torah to 70 languages? We can, we can enumerate four good things that will come out of translating the Torah in a good way. And we're going from, from the lowest level to the highest level. On the lowest level, on the simplest level, translating the Torah to 70 languages will help Jews survive the diaspora. On the the most simple level. Jews are going to be lost in the diaspora, in 70 lands, in 70 languages. And those languages will become their mother tongue, as, as has happened. And once it becomes their mother tongue, they will need to study the Torah via translators, and therefore, they need the Torah to be translated. And Moshe foresaw this, and he had the Torah translated to 70 languages, in order to prepare for the coming diaspora in the future. By showing us it's okay to translate, and I, have, I started doing it myself, and you may be taken aback by this, oh future Jewish generations, you may be taken aback because you will say, nah, but it's impossible to translate the Torah. It's an, it's an infinite text. It has infinite meanings. If you translate it into a language, you narrow down the meanings. And you see this in every translation. Every verse in, in the Hebrew, original Hebrew, has so many different meanings. You translate it, you lose, you lose 69 out of, the, out of the 70 meanings. Out of the 70 facets. But don't worry... You still need to do it because otherwise they're not going to survive the diaspora. So it has to happen and I'm starting. That's the first good thing, good reason, good thing to come out of translating the Torah. Second level, deeper level, it will bring the Torah to all the nations. That's a very messianic ideal. It'll bring the Torah to all the nations. Because in the future, all the nations will come to the Jewish people and say, please teach us Torah. We have realized that the religions we've inherited from our fathers are false, either f- completely false or partially false. And and we want you to teach, us, to teach us Torah, so then we're going to need the 70 translations. On an even deeper level, the translations will work to spiritually reflect Find the seventy languages. Here we're going even to a higher level. It's not just that it will help uh, connect the Jews to the Torah and connect non-Jews to the Torah. On the somehow on the level of the languages themselves, there's something impure about them. The way they were used, the way they were, uh, um, what was spoken with them, what was said about them, and the way they were used in order to. To forget about God instead of remember God, and once those languages will be used in order to remember God rather than forget about him or to truly acknowledge him in a good way because it'd be studying Torah, it will be a refinement of the languages. And the final and fifth and then fourth, the final and fourth level, the final and fourth good thing to come out of the of the translating of the Torah is that it will help reveal the 70 hidden aspects of the Torah. This is what I said before about things found in translation. Every translation, you lose 69 of the facets of the Torah. But the one facet that you do translate, you you learn something new about it. You discover something new about it. It's it's a little bit like what literary uh, scholars call estrangement. Estrangement is when you describe a familiar experience in new words. You become positively estranged. What does it mean, positively estranged? It means you experience that experience as if for the first time, as if you've you've never experienced it before. If someone describes heartache not using clichés, but in a new way that you've never heard it before, you become positively estranged to it and then you re-experience it for the first time. There's something about each translation that exposes an, a facet of the Torah. And it's kind of like, you know, a, a, a translation is like a mirror and when you, when you spread light and then it touches the mirror and goes back to you, it can go even even higher or to a level that's that's bef- that's higher than the level it, well the, the simplest the simplest picture is when I take a a basketball and I and I throw it down on the floor, it goes up and it passes my own hand or even my own body. So I started on one level and I bounce and it bounces back and it goes even higher. And the same goes if, if I point to a a flashlight, to a mirror, it goes back and it illuminates what's behind me. Not just me. It illuminates also what's behind me. I discover something new because of the reflection. It teaches me, it it goes back to the Torah and it illuminates a deep part of the Torah that was hidden before. The 70 facets of the Torah, also they're also... 70 hidden facets. The word Sod in Hebrew, which is the, 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 the mystical level of the Torah, the hidden level of the Torah, the Gematria, the numerical value, is 70. So it's the 70 facets allude to the miss, mystical, hidden level of the Torah, and they're somehow revealed through those translations. And this is a rectification of the Tower of Babel. Why? The Tower of Babel, what, what, did, we, what did we have there? We had uh, one language for all mankind. What was the term used in Hebrew? It was Safa Echat. Safa Echat. One language. And then it says, vidvarim Achadim. Dvarim recalls this parsha. Dvarim. But first it says Safa Echat. What is the numerical value of the term Safa Eichat? It's 794. Why is this interesting? Because which language was it? We know it was Hebrew. That was the language that God used to create the world. And that was the language that he spoke with to Adam and, and, and to Noah and to Shem and Ever and whoever was there the gods would speak with. And the Hebrew language is called Leshon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue. What is the numerical value of Leshon HaKodesh? numerical value of Leshon HaKodesh is 795. Just one more. Safa is 794. Leshon HaKodesh is 795. So close. And yet so far away. Why? Because that one language was used to fight God. To deny God, it was used to build the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was about making war with God and making placing a false idol on the top of it and having a sword in its hand that would that fights heaven. So the, it was it was negative unity. It was unity. Saphihad, one language where it was negative unity. it was the humanity united against God. And the punishment, was to differentiate this language. It was the Holy Tongue, but it was the Holy Tongue minus one. What is the minus one? The minus one, it was minus proper unity. The unity of faith in God. The alef, if, you, if you take Safa 1, 784, you just need to add an Aleph, a one, and then you get L'Shon HaKodesh. It was almost L'Shon HaKodesh. L'Shon kodesh. L'shona kodesh is a language of remembering God, but Safi'achat, just one letter, one one number, one one number, one degree smaller. He didn't have that Aleph, but that's everything, because without the Aleph, it becomes instead of a language of remembrance, it becomes a language of forgetfulness. Instead of a language of light, it's a language of darkness. Instead of a language of connecting to God, it's a language of detaching from God. So God divided the language into 70 languages and that seems to even make it even farther away from being a holy tongue it was so close to being a holy tongue why not just add the aleph but god realized that they're not ready to add the aleph so they need to be even further distanced from from their connection to god just after the tower of babel what happens god chooses one nation he chooses abraham and then Isaac, and then Jacob, because he he, he he's disappointed, he's disillusioned with uni, with, the, with the concept of a universal religion. He says, when they use, they try to make universal religion, they, they becomes the religion of humanism, which puts me out of the picture. So I prefer that they become separate nations with separate languages. But it's really it's a spiral process. You have safachat, you're very close to lashon hakodesh. But you can't go. You can't make that one step, because you just can't. You're not ready. You need to go through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Jewish people and getting the Torah. So the spiral is that the one language becomes seventy languages, and the spiral goes down, and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and 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 all more generations, and Moshe, and then receiving the Torah, and then the Torah, right? We and then we get the Torah in Leshon Hakodesh. And then we translated, and what, do we, what did we gain from this spiral process? We started with the Echad, very close to Hashanah Kodesh, but the, the main thing was missing, the unity, God's unity. So we split into 70 languages, which bring all the different cultural diversity of the world. And then you take all this diversity, and you explain the Torah in all these 70 languages, and you really, what you do is you, you, uh, it's like, it's like, turning the Torah into seventy movies that you screen all over the world, and each culture brings its own color, its own aspect, its own. And really, what happens is that much is lost in translation, but much is also found in translation. You regain the original unity. You regain the Aleph through the Ain, the 70 languages and cultures, you, re, you regain it in a very deep way, because the Aleph is really also the, God's infinite light. Infinite light means 70 facets, infinite facets. You need the, you need the, the Torah to be translated into, you need the, the, the ha, to have 70 languages, seven, 70 separate cultures, each, each one denying God in its own way, but really, indirectly, also uh, exploring and manifesting a facet of, of godliness. Because where did they get their cultures from? It's, it, all, it, all, it all comes from God. And then when the Torah is retranslated using those languages, you you regain and you reconstruct the unity of God in a far richer and more and more positive way. So let's just go back to the to, to the story. we First, we have the story about the five translators. But then I said there's another version of 72 translators. That King Ptolemy had 72 translators. 72 is almost like 70. Why 72? So we do know that there is an aspect of... The 70 becomes 72, both in Judaism and outside of Judaism. In Judaism, we see this, that when Moshe uh, chooses the 70 zkenim, the 70 elders uh, that would help him judge the Jewish people, he originally chooses 72 people. And then there's a kind of lottery held, and 70 out of the 72 are chosen, and two, uh, uh, they don't get to be part of the 70, but they still become prophets, and we have their names. They're called elad and Meidad, and they have special prophecy that's outside, of, outside of, the, of, the, of the tabernacle. So there were 70 wise men of the original Sanhedrin, so to speak, the original uh, group of elders that, that accompanied Moshe, there were actually two more. And same goes for the 70 nations. The 70 nations are the 70 descendants of, of Noah. But later on, two are added to them. Who? Yishmael and Esau. Ishmael and Esau bring the number of Gentiles to 72. So, what you have here is you have 72 translators just into one language. Because you need a lot of translations into one language. So, up until now, we said that God there was a miracle. The miracle was that they all made the exact same translation. And this was a miracle because it saved, at that point in history, it saved the Torah from being misunderstood by the Greeks. So it was a good thing that they translated it in exactly the same way. But could it also be that the, 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 the fact that they made the exact same translation was also part of the problem, not just part of the solution? Maybe it was part of the problem and part of the reason why it was such a, a hard day, like the building of the calf, and why it was uh, the world became dark for three days. Maybe the fact that it was identical translations was not just positive, but also negative. And what we learn from this is that maybe in the future the proper translation would have us make a multitude of different translations to the Torah. Which really, you know, very few of us are, are actual translators. So what do we do with this? What we do with this is that we are originally 70... 70 souls, 70 souls who came down to Egypt. The 70 are, are us, the Jewish people. And by the way, Ishmael and Esau should be part of us. They're, they became part of the nations. But we really should love them and care about them. They're, all, they're both descendants of Abraham. So maybe they, they joined the 70 souls who came down to Egypt and, and make them become 72. Another explanation would be that it would be just Abraham and Isaac themselves who spiritually came with the 70 souls to Egypt. Either way, we have these 72 souls, and that's really all of us. We are all descended from those 72 souls. Each of us needs to create his or her own translation of the Torah. We should take the example of Moshe in this parsha, When he says, I'm now going to repeat the Torah to you in my own words. He began to expound to elaborate upon the Torah in his own words. Moses' legacy is that all of us should translate the Torah to our own language, be it an actual foreign language, or be it just our own unique way of explaining things. It's the same thing. It's elaborate. It doesn't matter if it's another language or your own language, or whether your language is Hebrew, or it's not Hebrew. Because the main point here is that when you study something in the Torah, if you study this class, any other class, everything you study, you need to then find a way of translating it, so to speak, of explaining it in your own words. Only then do you understand it. And things will be lost in translation. You will not be able to fully convey the experience that you had when you learned something in the Torah, because that experience is inherently untranslatable. You can never relay, convey fully what you experience. But you will find that as you translate the Torah, i.e. explain it in your own words, things will be found in translation, not just lost in translation. You will gain a new understanding of what it is you learned by virtue of explaining it to someone else and explaining it with your words, with the words that resonate for you, that come out of your own heart, that means something to you. It means giving your own examples. It means connect, making new connections. It means explaining the the. Emotion that it evoked within you. That's what it means to translate the Torah. And the Torah will only be fully elucidated and fully explained only once all Jewish souls are able to translate it to their own language, to explain it in their own special terms. Only then will it really be incorporated into their being and only then it will really pull into the fold of Judaism all souls, because each one of us is part of a family of souls that speak a certain language. And so many Jews today have no connection to the Torah. Why? Because they need, each one of them needs someone who speaks their own language, who has their hobbies, who has their style of thinking, who likes the things that they like who uh, has the same sense of humor as they. And so that's why each one of us who is studying Torah, if you're listening to this class, it means you're studying Torah. And every class you listen to, you need to take that class, and you have to find a way of translating it in your own words, new words, to other people. They need it, because they need someone who speaks their own s- language, their own style, their own, their own, has their own vibe, and also you need it, because only then will you fully incorporate into your being what you learned. So, this is our lesson from the opening of Parashat Dvarim. This is Moshe beginning to elicit the Torah in his own words. He's using the term Ba'er, Ba'er et Torah. Ba'er means to translate into 70 languages, and we learn from this with all of us that are descendant of the original 70 souls that came into Egypt, also need to take up this, uh, this idea, this concept, and to follow Moses. And, and each of us should leva'er elucidate the Torah in our own unique, individual language. Hi, if you enjoyed this class, please click the like button and subscribe to the channel. On YouTube, also make sure to click the bell icon. To keep the classes flowing and free of charge, please consider supporting us on Patreon, an amazing platform for supporting independent creators. You're also welcome to join our weekly live Zoom class every Sunday evening, Israel time. You can find all the links in the description below. Thank you very much, keep healthy, and see you soon.